1: Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It is Thursday the 30th of March. Tom Stanley in for Nick as I will be again tomorrow. We've got a lot of news to get through today. That we is broadcaster and journalist Lydia Hislop and I. Two interviews to be heard before we hear Lydia's voice though and they are from James Sanderson, the chief executive and clerk of the course at Thirsk Racecourse, off the back of Rafe Beckett, you, I'm sure uh, well, plenty of listeners will have seen Rafe's tweet yesterday, highlighting the apparent lack of prize money at a Thirsk card on Tuesday. I started with Rafe talking horses, possible Thousand Guineas runners, Westover Reflection, and uh, his Lincoln runner, Jimi Hendrix. Then we come on to the Thursk issue. So first of all, here's Rafe on Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, he did a nice,
2: uh, his last bit yesterday morning Tom Tuesday, and, uh,
1: just an easy bit. He's done some stronger work earlier in the month, and uh, he's ready. He's been gelded, has he?
2: Yes. Yeah, that might uh, that might tighten things up a bit too. Mm. What
1: does he want ideally? I'm sort of leading into this as a you know he's won on on quick ground. I know he's he's got form over further. Is he a, does he want a sound surface and a strong pace to chase?
2: I, I'm not sure surface is that important to it. You know, he's won on soft ground at Doncaster as a two-year-old, a little bit. Um, so he certainly handles it. And uh, I think the strong gallop that hopefully you'll get and the uh, stiff mile will play, play to his strengths.
1: Anything else you're um, going to turn out this weekend you're looking forward to?
2: Yeah, I only have a, a problem, one problem other like runner put on. Roost in the, uh, the mile-and-a-quarter maiden. Who uh, see the moon? Uh, Colt out of uh, Red Star. Who won the Fred Darling for us? Mister hmm. uh, Oldry, and uh, he uh, he's done well over the winter. He might just need it, but uh, he's always horse we like.
1: Uh, for something down the line, have you have you have you got anything in mind, or what sort of type of horse do you think he will develop into?
2: No, I think he'll. I think he'll, he's a stayer in the making. Okay. I think he's likely to get a mile and a half and possibly further in time, but uh, this is a good spot to start, I and mean, we'll handle the
1: ground. OK, that's in the, the 4.45, if anyone's wondering, on Saturday. Um, if we can look ahead to the to the, the Guineas, um, obviously we've got all the, the trials to go, but um, notably you've got, what, four or five in, in the 1,000. Um, w- will they all take in trials, Rafe?
2: No. Uh, Nazoo could, uh, but I'll make a decision... Closer to the time, I know I haven't got much time. Hmm. So maybe, you know, we're three, uh, we're only three weeks out, but um, she's training well. Uh, she's not a filly who needs much fast work. And we'll decide closer to the time. But uh, I'd like to run her in, in, in the Nelquinn if we could. Um, but if we don't, you know, I'll make a decision about the Guineas closer to the time. You know, it's not if she misses a trial. It's not a given that she'll run in the Guineas. If you see what I
1: mean? Yeah. Okay. Um,
2: Lose yourself. Uh, who was second in the Oso Sharp? She, she's unlikely to make a trial. She's just a little behind at the moment, but she could make the Guineas. Um, obviously, she's got course form there. Uh, Julia Sierra who was fifth in the Chevening Park. If she was going to go for the Guineas, which I hope she will, she certainly looks like she might. Uh, she'll she she won't she won't have a trial. Uh, she'll go straight there. And Blue Stocking. I think we'll probably miss and go for an Oakes trial instead.
1: Okay. And Remarque?
2: Remarque, how can I forget her? Uh, she will need to go to a trial if she's to run in the Guineas. So Fred Darling possibly
1: We'll see. Uh, let, let's reflect on Westover quickly, if we can. Obviously, I mean, it might turn out that that um, finishing a well held second to Equinox is, is is a very very good run. What, what did you make of the race? Uh,
2: obviously, the winner is you know um, uh, a beast out of the ordinary, isn't mm. it? and um, I was really pleased with our. Um, you know, how could we not be? A, um, he beat some good horses fair and square and uh, with no prep and um, he's come out of it very well so I was delighted with him and you know, he's back here now uh, we you know he's fresh and well we nearly had to ride him out this morning he only got back late on Monday night so you know um, today being Wednesday so you know he's 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 got a he's got a terrific constitution and uh you know, as he's got older, you know he's got hardier. and I think um, you know the Coronation Cup would look an obvious stop for him next.
1: He seemed to handle the occasion well enough as well, given he's a horse who, you know, we, we know what happened at Ascot, for example, last year, and, and that occasion in Dubai can take some handling. But he he ticked that box, did he?
2: He did until Ryan got on it, and uh, he was very good in the paddock, better than I expected him to be. And ditto saddling. Um, he wasn't so good when Ryan got on him, and he had to be sort of slightly manhandled to to post. Mm. But uh, again, funny enough, when, once he got behind the stalls, then he looked like he was getting settle down again. Um, and all you know, uh, and when the stalls opened, you know, I was we were, we were expecting him to be keen. He wasn't actually. He was keen as they slowed it down into the bend, but for the first hundred yards or so, you know, he was he was uh, Ryan was was sitting up on him. So, uh, you know, I think you know, it, it sounds it sounds um, odd to say it, but he's still a horse we haven't really got to the bottom of, in my opinion. You know, we still haven't you know haven't made it made him the finished article. So I hoping mean, obviously,
1: hopefully that will happen this year. Mm. Um, finally, I, I wasn't sure to who to call about the link and then I saw your prize money tweet and thought that would all tie in quite nicely. So, um, look, I, I know what you were getting at with that, but um, what do you want to add to what you've said before on that front? This is relating to, to a, a Thirsk card, Rafe. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, you
2: know, it's just a sort of race to the bottom. Um, some race course groups indulge in, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's what we can get away with. You know, trainers will run because it's time of year, there's been no turf racing for five months and uh, you know, let's see what we can get away with. And that's basically what the Sandersons are, who run Thurska are doing in my view. You know, as one trainer, northern trainer neatly puts it. Where the Sanderson's go, poverty follows. This is just more of the same from them.
1: Do you feel as though there? I mean, do you sort of have it in your mind uh, for, for Class 5, Class 6 races, a minimum amount there should be to a winner that you are willing to run horses to compete for, or not?
2: Why, should, why does there need to be a minimum? You know, they know how much it costs to get it horses to the races they know how much it costs to pay staff they know what it is to make it viable you know what we need is something that's sustainable this is just not sustainable and that's it in a nutshell
1: do you do you feel new, obviously Newbury announced a, an upturn in prize money for for, for the year ahead? Um, we know there was the you described it as voting with your feet in the race last year, where there were there were no declarations. Have Newbury answered some of those those prize money concerns for you?
2: Some of them, yeah, and that was the direct result of that boycott last July. In my idea, we had not boycotted that race. Doubt whether this would have happened, but. Nevertheless, we applaud New for put for getting on the front foot, and
1: we'd like to see more of the same. Ray, right, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Well, Chief Executive and Clerk of the Course at Thirst Race Course is James Sanderson. Um, James, I'm, I'm sure you, you saw uh, what Rayford uh, had tweeted. I'm sure you're aware of his views. What was your reaction to, to when you saw what he put out there? Um,
3: I'm not entirely surprised, Tom. Um, the uh, the programme in question um, is is a very low value programme. Um, it's first um, has sixteen fixtures in 2023. Um, we have thirteen uh, of our own fixtures, which are known as race fixtures, and the fixture list is supplemented with with various amounts of BHA fixtures each year, which uh, BHA allocates, you, you are, the way BHA allocates fixtures is it has so many fixtures to fill slots in the programme where there are perceived gaps in the industry, and race courses apply for those slots where you know they can fit them into their existing fixture list, and next fixture is one of those BHA fixtures. And for the BHA fixtures, the BHA, um, they dictate the programme. Um, and the programme is determined by what they perceive as the needs of the horse population um, for that slot. Um, <clears throat> and so that programme is a particularly low-grade programme. Um, as you'll be able to see, um, it consists of five Class 6 races, um, which are as low as you go, um, and two Class 5 races. Which um, are obviously just class six in terms of the quality, so it's a very low grade program, and accordingly, you know, the prize money at the bottom end of Gale, um is is you know uh, at a low end. So when you cumulatively add up seven very low grade
1: races, um, uh, which are uh, which you know is what that program consists of, you don't end up with a particularly high total. Uh, I, I d- totally. I totally take the point that, that these are um, BHA allocated fixtures, then, but first Grace Course is still solely responsible for setting the prize money for each contest, yes? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So, um, with with this program in particular, the Class 6 races, the minimum value required for a Class 6 race is £4,350. Um, we set the values at £6,000, um, and the minimum value for a Class uh, five race is five thousand three hundred pounds, and we've set the value at seven thousand pounds for the class five races. So um, they're actually thirty six percent above the requisite minimum value. But I mean that it's, it's low grade racing, um, and it is it's obviously you know relatively low prize money accordingly. Um, James, would a would a a, a class Five or six contests on one of the the non BHA allocated days. So I don't know your 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 program book off the top of my head. But let's say if, if Thirst Hunt Cup day has a has a class five or class six race at the back end of the card, would that have the same value, or because it's not a BHA allocated fixture, would you would it be being run because it's on a Saturday, a bigger day for slightly more prize money? Um, Invariably, it would run for a little bit more, maybe a £1,000 more. Um, The way we
3: allocate our budget is on an annual basis, which all race courses do. You don't look at race programmes in complete isolation. And the thing about BHA programmes, Tom, is they're granted one year and they're gone the next um, because they move around calendar and the BHA places them, um, which is their job, um, where it best serves the industry. Um, and where it can fit into a race course's fixtures. So for example, we've never raced on the fourth on this this Tuesday before, um, on this fourth of April meeting, and chances are we, we may not ever again. Um, and therefore we don't invest a fortune um, in BHA fixtures. We we keep our powder dry for our own fixtures and in terms of how we allocate prize money I will look at the the season as a whole, and I I have my budget for prize money, which is set by the board at first. And, you know, for example, this meeting on Tuesday is our lowest total prize fund um, with 44,000 for a very low-grade BHA fixture. Um, At the upper end of the scale, I've got two meetings in uh, 2023 where the total prize fund budget
1: is 110,000. So considerably more um, and they are on race course fixtures on Saturday afternoons as you can imagine mm. so looking at looking at my programme budget in the round which is which is the way you have to do this we will in the round we will have an average prize money per race course fixture of £80,000 at least and an average prize money per BH fixture of £52,000. And, you know, I think you find that most race courses, like thirst I mean, we're not like the all-weather tracks that live on BHA fixtures, and so invest, you know, considering more of that, but BHA fixtures, BHA fixtures we actually, we invest in our programme, which are 13 race fixtures, and then we run the BHA fixtures for the industry, and so there is a gap. Have you had any direct contact from either Rafe Beckett or any other trainers, um, be it at the start of this year or, or last year or before, regarding prize money at the track? Um, about this fixture I have, in particular, not, not generally. I mean, in general, um, the trainers
3: that support Thirsk, um, they you know, the, when, you, when you talk to trainers, Tom, they would always like a bit more prize money, mm. as you can imagine. But they, you know, they they support Thirsk at the values at which we run the races at Thirsk. And that broadly tells you, when you look at our runners, we'll have an average of, you know, somewhere just over 10 per race. Um, you know, we the, the race the was quite high up in terms of the average runners per race per day per course in the, in the overall schedule. So I think our prize money is about right. We, you know, we do what we can with prize money, but as you can imagine with race courses, you have many other calls on your funding, um, not least, you know, Thirst spent nearly two million a few years ago in 2019 on uh, a brand new owners and trainers facility, and we provide owners and trainers in that facility with um, some very nice hospitality on the day. And and I think in the round, when when a trainer looks at, you know, do I support a race course, prize money is one factor, but it's it's also, you know, is the prize money, adequate, or is it good? Um, is the is the track presented and in a, in, a, in a nice way? Is it safe for me to run my horses on? And bearing in mind that you know, if I've got eighty runners at first seven race program, only seven only seven of those owners win first prize. So there's going to be you know 73 ones that haven't won. It's very important that the experience they all have is very good. I think in, in the round,
1: um, first provides. You know, a very, you know, very good service to its trainers in that respect. Um, and, so far, and, and we actually got recognised with the ROA Gold Standard um, last year. James, appreciate your time. Thanks ever so much. Okay, Tom. Lydia, with me then. Lydia, what did you make of those two chats?
4: Well, it was punchy from Rafe, wasn't it? Um, it was. <laughs> I'm assuming you you don't you don't want me to to dwell on Roost, <laughs> the half brother to Balaz. please, please do. Well, but I love that family. I I really yeah. do love. I love Red Start, um, and I loved her 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 son Bullace as well. So I'm really looking forward to to Ruth's running Anyway, um, I think um I think James Simpson is right to make the point that it can't just be about prize money. You know, a race, a race course does have to invest in infrastructure, and it does have to be about the whole experience and maintaining the safety of the track. Definitely agree. H- however from race race point of view and that of owners and trainers the amount it costs to to train and prepare a horse and transport a horse to the race course does not vary whether it's a bha fixture or what james calls uh, a race course fixture which again is a sort of you know it's a, it's a debatable term that, that that whole area of ownership is something that has never really been properly explored and you know would probably need uh, a lot of lawyers to do so. Um,
1: what, what about the fact that, that James suggested that there's there's no consistency year on year with the BHA fixtures therefore the commitment to those has to be less to that those which the race course puts on?
4: Isn't that overlooking the money that Thirst gets in terms of uh, media rights and particularly stre- streaming money um, into on the day? I expect this being a, a low uh, class card that they will not suffer from field sizes uh poor field sizes because unfortunately in britain we're quite well ahead in the race to the bottom and uh, that means that we have an excess of lesser horses and an inadequacy of better horses particularly at the top level of handicaps just before just below group level and that is a major urgent problem for british racing and one which everybody um, still seems to be hoping will go away but it's just it's just going to get worse so uh, my point is that his i would imagine um, and i I would imagine and i 'll stress the word imagine because that the media rights income for those streaming income particularly for those kind of of races which are competitive and full fields is quite good and the problem essentially that we all have here is that no there is such opacity about about what race courses earn via their media rights via streaming you know it's not it's we're not able to judge whether. Uh, the pr- amount of prize money being put up let's take the whole year as James Sanderson is saying you know and then you can break it down to, to uh, race meeting by race meeting we, we on the outside can't judge it owners and trainers and the rest of the industry staff and jockeys can't judge it the British Horse Racing Authority can't judge it so it's it's impossible to say whether a fair amount of money is being put towards prize money I mean if you take the, the Lincoln this Saturday you know they're uh, Doncaster and uh, Arc being uh, applauded for getting putting in more prize money to the Lincoln and uh, as a result of that they have ended up with better fields i mean it was shocking previously you know that the spring mile didn't fill i mean if ever that was an alarming moment it it, it was then but we don't know uh, what uh, prize money um, what proportion of their income race, co- race courses are putting in as prize money so therefore the prize money purse at the lincoln on lincoln day on saturday might be great or it might not be enough. We simply don't know. And I suppose, if you know, to segue into another issue that's that's going on, if you look at the £100,000 per fixture that ARC, um, it is reported, has offered the five breakaway courses, United Irish Race Courses, Thurless, Kilbeggan, Limerick, Roscommon and Sligo, £100,000 per fixture, well, that might suggest... Uh, that it's not enough. I mean, the, my major reaction to the Irish media rights is, you know, more more opacity. We don't really know what, what we're dealing with in terms of, you know, how much money and where. But that's a little bit more information than Britain has ever had. And if I was uh, British owners, trainers, industry, the the BHA, etc., um, I'd be wanting to know whether that £100,000 per fixture is typical, particularly as if we're talking about, you know, Kilbegan and there are other higher profile, race courses with higher standard of racing and crucially that race more frequently, particularly in Britain because our fixture list is is more crowded, you know, is there potentially more money per fixture that is being paid there? The problem is we don't know and nobody can judge and that's just a a sorry state of affairs. It's very difficult for anybody to have any confidence in uh, the whole financial structure of British racing when it is so hidden.
1: Here's the thing if I'm running a race course and as James says the minimum requirement for a class 6 race is 4000 and I'm putting on 6000 and I am getting a you know 10 to 12 runners fields and I know the the point is to to why that is happening because there are too many of those quality of horse but if that's happening I'm ticking those boxes where is the the requirement the incentive to raise that prize money unless the minimum itself is raised
4: I think the the requirement, the incentive is to not see British racing go down the drain comparatively compared to the rest of the world. I mean, in the the uh, uh, BHA submission um, to government, which I know we're going to. Um, cover I was really encouraged by the line um, uh, that they're hoping that the government can help Britain to British racing to thrive and stay at the front of a global racing industry I'm really delighted that finally that is an ambition of British racing a stated ambition of British racing but the problem is if you have um, a a program of uh, lower end racing that is greater incentive to have more horses uh being bred and raised and owned in order to fill those and that is fine provided the top end of your program is healthy there's no, there's nothing wrong with lower grade racing i like it i watch it you know i bet on it i like it a lot but th- there is a problem when the base of the pyramid becomes so elongated and the top of the pyramid just below the apex is starting to eat in so much that the top will topple that's what that's what the incentive is—the fact that British racing needs to remain at the forefront on the global stage and not uh, constantly be in a race to the bottom, which I believe it is in.
1: The um, BHA responses—they tweeted out yesterday. They said on behalf of British racing, the BHA responded to a at DCMS Select Committee inquiry into gambling regulation, uh, and they listed the key points from the evidence. The the one that you mentioned is. Um, Relating to British racing um, thriving, as you say, and staying at the at the front of the of the global racing industry. One um, else leapt out at you as regarding those eight points they tweeted, Lydia.
4: Well, they were talking about wanting a reformed levy, and obviously, um, you know, our industry goes on and on and on about the levy. Um, as I've said earlier in in this show, I think we should be looking more, uh, particularly, at our internal structure. I think that's more. Uh, likely to happen you know so reform of that or uh, uh, better conversations about that would be would be helpful um uh, and they're also they're also talking about proportionate uh wider uh regulatory environments and that how they would support proportionate reg- regulation that protects people from gambling harms while at the same time acknowledging that uh racing and betting has a unique relationship unlike any other sporting sector and that this should be recognised through future legislation in the future gambling environment. You have to strike a balance between consumer freedom and consumer protection and also remember threats to sporting integrity. So, uh, And then also uh, talked about their hope that the white paper would be published shortly. I'm not expecting the white paper this side of Easter, but maybe shortly after.
1: And. Will the white paper and its contents be affected by the recent fines, in particular the 19.2 million handed out to to William Hill? And surely these are all pretty ill-timed with the spotlight on on problem gambling at the moment and how that might affect racing. The fact that, that the headlines at the moment are gambling companies getting fined for not protecting their customers, that is not a good thing for racing, surely.
4: Absolutely not, I totally agree with that i mean it, it, the the timing of it and the regularity of it you know gives further ammunition to um, anti gambling. Campaigners. I mean, the regularity is like, that. there's been 26 fines handed out since the start of 2022. And as you say, this is the largest yet. I mean, that's partly a tacit admission from the gambling commission that they weren't tough enough in this area previously. I mean, surely, I mean, that just has to be the case. Um, but yeah, the the William Hill fine is interesting because um, the at times where there were failures in customer protection and anti-money money laundering measures, um, coincide with Hills's sale to um, Caesars Entertainment but also predate uh, the sale of the um, non-American business two eight eight eight, and it's in the non-American business that the failings occurred. Now everybody knew a fine was coming in this area. It was clear that eight 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 had sort of essentially set aside, to set a, a, a negotiated a provision of fifteen million to cover a prospective fine. In the end, that wasn't even enough. But that suggests that there has been some level of negotiation or sort of, or, or at least conversation with the Gambling Commission, which maybe hasn't come to fruition, and it's. Ended with the Gambling Commission just just giving this nineteen point two million fine. So I mean, what what I'm saying is that there is there was this potentially could have been um, brought to a conclusion sooner, and given the the timescale of the white paper when it has been brought to a conclusion probably couldn't have been, couldn't have been worse it's just uh it's it's really really bad timing there's quite there's a good piece by Alistair Osborne in the Times Business section that was yesterday um which was spot on I mean he blames um he puts some blame at the door of Hills's former boss Ulrich Benson and also points out the lack of context to the Gambling Commission's examples of losses such as you know had the customers cited one previously and he asks an interesting question which um, doesn't which is doesn't the regulator want people to win money from the bookmakers? And it's 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 interesting. Uh, we've heard a lot from Andrew Rhodes about what the, what the Gambling Commission's attitude towards people betting is. Because to me, it kind of comes across as, as quite moralistic at times.
1: Do you see the the white paper then as a sort of continuously evolving? process regards its contents or, or, or we're, are we in a position where those in the know as to what what is going to go into it or come out of it are, are looking back five six months ago and saying well look we know what's going to going to be in the white paper it's just a case of getting around to writing it publishing it putting it out there or are these these latest stories a, a, a real influence on on what goes into it do you think
4: I think they could be I mean I, I think a lot of the gambling of the white paper is going to be Asking the the Gambling Commission to to carry out further research, essentially, I don't think it's going to be answering. As I said on this podcast many times before, answering all of the questions that the um, discourse su- around it suggests that they're going to. I think that this is just the trigger on the next process. I think, however. I do think that, you know, with particularly with, with successive sec- Secretary of States and the, with successive Ministers for Gambling, you know, successive governments, um, that uh, each time we have a new person there, there will be a, 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 an instinct or a, a, a want to put some sort of stamp on it, to have some kind of influence on it. So I do think it's a risk, yeah, I, I absolutely do. But, I mean... I listened to Andrew Rhodes on the um, Today programme yesterday, When uh, no, two days ago, when he was announcing, or well, was it yesterday? I can't remember my days, but uh, he was announcing. Uh,
1: yeah, it was it was Tuesday off the back of a hill story.
4: Two days ago, right, okay. And so he, he was saying all operators, uh, Andrew Rhodes, obviously the chief executive of the Gambling Commission, all operators are required to know their customers. They have to know something about them. They have to set reasonable limits in place so that people don't spend at too quick a level or spend beyond a level which is reasonable. Most people in this country, well, he then corrects himself, on average in this in this country, 22.5 million people will gamble each year, but uh, they'll spend less than three hundred pounds on gambling. Now, um, the word reasonable is 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 fraught is fraught, isn't it? What your idea of reasonable might not be my idea of reasonable one one person's uh, a reasonable amount as a proportion of their income might not be another person's reasonable amount as a a portion of income so I, I don't like these sort of moralistic elements and I also don't like in the general discourse in in the media particularly I think in the racing media the conflation of affordability checks with restrictions or de facto closures Um, and these are being conflated in how affordability checks are being talked about. As many of us predicted when these affordability checks came in, I believe that they are being used as a cloak to close and restrict people whom the bookmakers do not want to bet with them because they stand a chance of winning. Um, And I think Andrew Rhodes knows this because I went back again after listening to him on the Today programme and watched again his Luck on Sunday interview with with Nick um, from last month. And at one point he says, there's a couple of times he mentions, there are bookmakers who have decided to change the mix of customers they've got um, we, we, and he referred to not knowing where a particular bookmaker has decided to pitch their risk. And then he said, again, we've got operators who've decided they don't want to have higher spending customers. So essentially, that is a tacit, certainly an acknowledgement that there, that there are restrictions and closures. And it's a tacit exor- endorsement as the, as a legitimate part of a bookmaker's policy. But then I'm left wondering where those people go who... Um, you know are, are responsible gamblers you know aren 't gambling beyond their means but might occasionally show a, a threat of, of winning and as we know from the algorithm might be spending a, a lot they might be high staking customers but they might not be they might be relatively modest customers who just happen to know what they 're doing and i 'm reminded by the obligation of the gambling commission 's license which is that they have to ensure that betting is fair and open and i 'm wondering whether the night where the ninety percent or so of people who gamble Where are they being represented by the Gambling Commission? Because I just don't see it.
1: As one winning punter said to me recently, who would had his account closed off the back of providing some details and um, it being decided that he couldn't afford to to bet with them. he suggested that the amount that he's taken off said bookmaker in the last 10 years, it should have been the other way around. He should have been affordability checking the bookmaker. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. It's not an affordability check, is it? No, it's a a way of it's a way of restricting a a winning punter.
4: Yeah, it's a pretense that under the cloak of affordability, bookmakers are uh, expanding and perhaps accelerating their, um, uh, their, their policies of industry wide policies. I'm not I'm not singling out any particular bookmaker here of restrictions or restrictions that are so extensive um, compared to the amount that a uh, customer might wish to bet that they are in effect closure.
1: Let's talk posters, Lydia. You uh, flagged this with me. We know all about the the Cheltenham Festival poster on the on the underground, which is where a lot of these these posters go up. There's um, a Royal Ascot one. I've seen neither. There's a Derby one as well. What's your take on them?
4: Okay, I'll, I'll give you the order in which I, I saw them. So uh, the first ones I saw were, were the Royal Ascot ones. So um, were, were
1: you going up the escalator or down the escalator? I was going up the escalator. Excellent. The
4: um, and, uh, in fact, I, I can uh, justify this. I've got some um, photos of said posters, and they're quite shaky. I have... <laughs> managed to press the button quick enough so they're a little bit blurry but anyway um so there's a there's a woman wearing a you know a sort of fabulous royal ascot outfit and the strap line says and she's sorry and she's sitting on the desk in the office everybody else is you know at work wearing office clothes and she is in her royal ascot outfit and it says there's you you then there's the ascot you and then there's another one with a, a woman in a similarly outlandishly brilliant outfit uh, walking her dog Um, And again, there are other normally attired dog walkers around. And again, there's you. And then there's the Ascot you. And I thought, well, you know, horse racing in having the confidence to be funny shock. um, You know, that is that that is a brand, Ascot, that knows what it is and is having some gentle humour about it. And I thought it was really, really good. Now, there is a one uh, featuring a man which I don't think is as successful because, you know, he, he, he it, it it isn't so obviously you know taking somebody in their Royal Ascot outfit and putting them very much out of context. But I do think the other two were were really good, and it struck me that it, you couldn't contrast it more extremely than with the Cheltenham poster of um, Rachel Blackmore. I mean, literally, the, the, the advertising company there took a Technicolor moment, the first woman to win the Gold Cup, and literally drained all the colour from it to produce a sepia poster in which they then airbrushed out. I mean, it was extraordinary to me how bland they could make that technical event. So anyway, the next day, after I'd come down the escalator, Tom, at the same same tube station, I found at the bottom a Derby poster. Now, this has some horses at the top. And so I suppose some people might criticise the Ascot poster for not having horses. I, I, I don't think that's how, you know, most people... In London, would interact with 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 Ascot. I think I think it's fine what Ascot are doing. And as I said, I quite like it anyway. So picture of horses, and then underneath it says, "Race to the rhythm of the Derby drum," and "drum" is capitalized randomly.
1: And the, the D or the the D or the D R U M, D R U M drum. D-R-U-M,
4: drum. Right. Race to the rhythm of the Derby drum and my first reaction was if this is the same advertising company as the Cheltenham festival posters have, I, I think we need a new advertising company at talking Race courses um, but a sort of what, what does that mean what what is that what do you what do you take from that race to the rhythm of the derby drum
1: well i don't really know what the derby drum is lydia um <laughs>
4: That's because it doesn't exist, Tom. No,
1: but isn't that isn't I mean I know I know your point here is that is that you know Ascot has a sense of, of identity and and confidence in it, and that is I think that 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 comes across pretty clearly in those two pieces of advertising, hmm. and 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 perhaps the other side, um, there's 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 a lack of identity there, and and I think definitely what was highlighted by the um, the, the Cheltenham poster is 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 a sense of fear as well about promoting horse racing to the wider public in a certain way
4: definitely i i i agree with that totally and and the the derby seems not to know what it is and i mean i don't know do jockey club racecourses know what the derby is i mean i think I would say the derby if you compare it to royal ascot is a sort of earthier broader more close experience if you think about the people on the hill and how close they get to the horses at at a spectacular race course. I mean, in terms of the actual track as opposed to, you know, the infrastructure, just a spectacular race course and how close you get to it and how immediate the action is. And, you know, it is the most significant race. I mean, doffing my hat at the Guinness Festival, but in terms of its... it's renowned worldwide. The Derby is the most is the first most significant race of the entire season of Britain. It is exciting, you know. Dreams that have been unfolding over two to three years for a series of connections uh, who have a foal um, that they've entered in the Derby, or at least under the old structure, they did. Um, to the point where only one of them has actually taken it away. I mean, there's a there's an there's some obvious sort of narratives there that you could you could talk about and celebrate with the Derby, which is both about the experience from the customer's point of view and all. Also about the race but you know uh, whatever that was i can't i can't even remember what it was race to the rhythm of the derby drum it's just it's just awful and you know i think you know we need in order to be able to to in order to be able to enthuse people from the outside in the sport of british racing which i think is very easily done and i would say that because i love it um you know you have to believe in yourself you have to have confidence and you have to know what you are
1: well, on the pod on on Tuesday, I wanted to get Craig Kieswetter on to talk about Girl Racer, who won in the colours of Barnane Stud at uh, at Wolverhampton, um, and here he is now. Uh, my fault, we're a couple of days late, uh, Craig, but um, but a chance for you to re- reflect on her first of all. She was very impressive.
0: Uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. It um, yes, it was it was obviously great. It was lovely to watch, and um, it's always nice to have have homebred fillies um, that are bred the way that she is and, and bred so well to come out and win, um, win first time out. And, you know, look, it's, um, realistic. it's obviously it's a maiden on um, all all the all-weather at Wolverhampton with, with all due respect, but I think it's the manner in which she won, which, um, which was very impressive for us. And obviously uh, her breeding being a, a half-sister to... Um, a, our freshman, our new stallion down here, Real Gone Kid, mm. by Schlitzel, um, adds to, adds to the excitement down in, in, in the South African breeding industry. So, you know, it's, it's, dual, um, it's dual for us, obviously, in Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere, with Barnan and then with Richmond Highlands down here. So it's, uh, it was a very, very nice win. And um, the feedback, obviously, from Kieran and from William Haggis was, was very encouraging. So exciting stuff.
1: Tell me about Real Gone Kid and, and how he's getting on so he's um, he's he's terrifically bred you know he's he's out of
0: a mayor mare who unfortunately we lost last season uh, in fault frankel but he's out of a mare that won two group ones and a group two was, was champion three-year-old philly in south africa and um we we put her in fall um to Sissel in Australia, fold him down. He's done quite a bit of traveling. He went from Australia to Bonan and then down to South Africa and raced down here. So, you know, with that sort of pedigree and and our sort of mantra and belief of, of trying to improve the bloodlines, um, on the farm and especially for the industry, you know, the fact that it's, it's a Sissel cult who was exceptionally quick over five furlongs. and that the family's doing well is, is adding a lot of excitement on the farm for us, and, mm. and already the interest has, has picked
1: up in him, which is which is great news. I didn't know. You, so this was in the fast lane who you've lost. I didn't I didn't know about that, um, which is which is sad news. But um, obviously, um, the fact that you, I mean, sending it to no no never has has, um, has worked out pretty well. I guess the last few seasons he had. Exactly. You know. Look. I mean. in
0: Europe is, is, is fantastic, as, as we know, um, and Nodo no, never has had a phenomenal start to his career. So for us to get a filly, um, obviously having lost in the fast lane, to get a filly that, um, first of all, a filly, uh, important, but second of all, a filly that's showing um, some promise and has some excitement in, in, in the trading yard is very encouraging for the farm. You know, we, we want to, to obviously breed these mares, um Top stallions, um, and you know the colts will, will obviously go to the ring and, and, and be sold. And um, but please, we want to keep to to expand and to improve the farm and to create some foundation mares.
1: And um, tell me what what Cheltenham was like, and obviously Echoes in Rain ran in in a in a race that will never be forgotten. Um, I, I I don't know what you made of her performance, but um, it, it was quite a place to be that Tuesday.
0: Yeah, Cheltenham's bonkers, isn't it? As well? <laughs> Yes, it really it's, it's is. It's great fun. It's, um, <laughs> it's manic, as always, whenever whenever you go there. Um, the fact that we had three runners over the week makes it more exciting. But, you know, I thought Echoes and Rain, she, she ran a terrific race. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of the sport and the industry, there could not have been a, a better sort of sending off for Honeysuckle and all her connections. Mm. Um, I think we all know... That, um, her story um, the story of her connections and and the whole um, the whole team behind her so to be able to be there um, and run against her and at least you know make sure she's still as true as ever it was Mm. for the sport it was brilliant to see her finish on such a high
1: who were the other two you had Craig? I've missed
0: we had um, Elete Tom
1: oh you did yes of course
0: who who, who won the 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 Tattersalls um uh, a novice hurdle and uh, and then we had gust of wind on the friday so you know it was with our partners you know we've, we've got some amazing partners um hollywood bets um and the heifer family down here in south africa who are, are massive owners and very very passionate about the industry so to get them involved um Overseas, you know, we bought a C-Uni Philly at, at Book One that's gone into training with with, with Richard Hannon um, with the Hollywood team. So, you know, to get them involved overseas and to get them at Cheltenham and to, you know, to get them to come to Ascot and Goodwood and all these sort of these brilliant days um, and to experience um, the European sort of industry is very exciting. So... Um, You know, look, it's it's, it's hard, you know, when you've got runners in grade one races and group one races, you obviously want to win, Mm. Um, but you're running against the best that's out there, um, especially, you know, Cheltenham in terms of National Hunt and and Ascot in terms of flat. so... um, it's, it's looking exciting and, and we're, we're sort of definitely trending
1: in the right direction last question I, I know you're you're mad busy with falling season etc and, 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 and travelling to and from Europe but is there a, a horse who we may or may not have heard of who is going to be running on these shores that, that you're particularly looking forward to this season Craig okay look I'm not going to I'm not going to be like Aidan O'Brien and say, I, say we have a triple crown, <laughs> a triple crown horse as Augusta as Augusta and as August all the that is the dream um But, look, we we are very
0: excited with, um, obviously, obviously Goal Race. If if all goes to plan, obviously, the French Guineas, maybe Ascot, maybe Goodwood. But um, a horse that is is very dear to to the family is is Candleford, who won the Duke of Edinburgh Stakes, the Royal Ascot last year. So, you know, he's a a tough old boy, and hopefully he can come out again and, and give us a bit more joy.
1: Craig, thanks for your time. All the best. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Back with Lydia Hislop. And a tip. Is it Doncaster Saturday in the Lincoln or elsewhere, Lydia?
4: Um, well, I mean, at the time of recording, we haven't had the draw. So that is kind of uh, fraught with danger.
1: That's a good point. I think that's a very fair, fair point to make.
4: <laughs> what, um, what are you are
1: you, are you expecting? What sort of do you do you tend to feel about that that straight course at, at Doncaster and, and the Lincoln? Um, I'm, I'm far not- side or or not? I-
4: uh usually i don't know i mean i I tend to what, what i tend to i mean i love this race meeting i think it's a fantastic race meeting um and i know it's kind of uh with the um you know like the champion series and in many ways the craven is seen as the start of the flat you know, I, the, the lincoln is the start of the flat so i'm delighted to see proper size and i, I you know I, I hope this is borne out actually at declaration point proper proper size fields for the spring mile and the lincoln i don't know I, with the spring mile i tend to if there's a horse i've been following um that's uh entered in the spring mile i'll kind of take a risk and then i suppose i might depending on w- what prices are available if i have a fancy for the lincoln i'll have weighed up whether i think that the price is worth taking not going blind with the draw or whether i want to react to the to the spring mile because obviously that would mm. if, if the if the spring mile is a properly properly sized field you know and it does it does rely on that then that will give you some some lincoln clues but i mean it's clear that doncaster are not happy with the state of their ground are they no. the uh, website they're talking about um soft heavy in places. And they say the ground is safe and perfectly raceable, given it is soft, heavy in places. But sadly, the grass covering is not as uniform or where we would want it to be aesthetically in all areas of the track. It's quite a defensive going description. It's sort of a preemptive going description, isn't it? We had that with the Cheltenham Festival and in the end, there didn't seem to be... Um, any uh, complaints that I heard about bareness of the track due to the very difficult winter that um, uh, we've, we've suffered in, in Europe, certainly in Britain and, and Ireland, in terms of frost and limiting grass growth, for that kind of thing. But the, it does suggest from Doncaster that the uh, going is going to be claggy, puddingy, and that you're going to need to handle that kind of of ground. Therefore, <laughs> I,
1: I would love, I clag-y. would love to open up a racing TV broadcast and say, "Hello, welcome to X, Y, Z. Uh, the going today's puddingy."
4: <laughs> Soft to puddingy. Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, go on, like, sorry.
4: With, with, with- <laughs> And claggy in places.
1: Yes, custody. Go on. <laughs>
4: um, I quite fancy a while for it. Uh, he went at, at Redcar um, at the back end of last season in heavy ground. He went very comfortably. I still think he's feasibly handicapped. He's, you know, vertically progressive as far as I can see on the basis of what he did last year. He's been gelded over the winter. And so I'm very interested in him. I'm also interested, though, in a horse called Kadavar. Um, who is a three-year-old trained by Andrew Baldy. Now, he's got a couple of entries at Doncaster over the weekend. I wouldn't be interested in him if he ran in the Maiden, which is on Saturday. I'd be much more interested in him if he was declared for the 10-furlong three-year-old handicap on the Sunday, cadavar.
1: Okay, Lydia, thank you. And thanks to everyone at home for tuning in. I'll be back with you tomorrow to see out the week. That was Thursday, the 30th of March. Bye-bye.